All righty, well, welcome to North Village Church. You got to grab a seat there. My name is Michael. It's great to be here. This morning, we're going to be in James chapter 2. So if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one at the back. You can grab our devotional. If you're new here this morning, it's our gift to you. Turn to page 146. You can follow along in our devotional. If you are new here this morning, we're so glad uh, you're here. What a great time uh, to come visit a new church. And uh, we want to make it as easy as possible. So we have these tablets we pass to the aisle. And everybody puts their name uh, in the tablets. Provide as much information as you like. We want to make it as easy as possible to learn about North Village Church. I'm sure many of us have heard the quote from Gandhi who said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. It's a quote that came out of a time in Gandhi's life when he was actually spiritually searching, seeking, asking questions, because Gandhi grew up in what's referred to as a caste system, and a a caste system, system, it determines your position in life, and that can never change, and so Gandhi begins to just reflect, to think about life, to kind of seek out the claims of Jesus. And so one Sunday morning, he he visits a local church, and the greeter at the door stopped him and said, you should worship with your own people. Perhaps all of us this morning can resonate with that quote on some level. Perhaps all of us have had moments in life where we have felt judged unfairly. Maybe we've had moments, uh, middle school memories. Middle school, the toughest season of all of life, right? Where we get left out of uh, a circle of friends because of outward appearances, and, and yet it seems like that, that middle school challenge uh, continues even into adulthood. Well, this morning, God's word is going to speak to the importance of our attitude and compassion toward others. And specifically, we're going to look at three subpoints this morning, the face of favoritism, the failure of favoritism, and the mercy of God. Let's look at our first one, the face of favoritism. Grab that devotional. Turn to page 146. There's some questions in the devotional. That's for later on in the week. Just let's drill into scripture. James chapter 2 verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So right off the bat, verse 1 starts off with, my brethren. And again, James is reminding us that God's word is personal. My brethren. God's word is relational. God's word is warm. God's word is not against us, but God's word is for us. And right at the beginning, God's word is reminding us that we're not alone. That when we are in Christ, we are my brethren. We are my brothers and sisters. And we were living in a day right now where our culture is fascinated by unity and acceptance and equality. And yet, it is only in Jesus that every socioeconomic spiritual barrier is broken down 
so that by grace, through faith in Jesus, we become my brethren. That's only in Jesus, brothers and sisters. In addition, the language personal favoritism, do you see that in verse 1? The attitude of personal favoritism. In the original language, it's describing a people who were persuaded by outward appearances. That phrase, personal favoritism, is literally somebody who's showing favoritism based on the face. So that James introduces this illustration in verses 2, 3, and 4. It says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in this good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Imagine what that must have been like. In the context of the passage, there's a man who walks in to the gathering of worship, and outwardly, he's impressive. Outwardly, he is dressed in the finest clothes. He is dripping with style and fashion. And as a result, he receives special attention. In contrast, another man walks in the room who's poor, shabby clothes, maybe even has an odor. The word dirty in verse 2 is not only a con- connotation of poverty, but it's, it's, it's even a connotation of immorality so that people might see characteristics of a certain lifestyle and as a result, avoid him. It's favoritism. It's favoritism. Now, it's possible in our day that we might say to ourselves, well, I I would never do that, Michael. (laughs) That's back then uh, when people struggled with stuff like that. But I'm an educated person, right? I'm a friend to all people, right? We tell ourselves, I would never I've been through training at work. (laughs) I've been through classes on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I would never do that. But let's not move through the illustration too quickly. Have not all of us had moments in life where we're walking one direction and we see somebody and then we turn and walk in a different direction? Have not all of us seen somebody with that car or that house or that title and maybe a little butterfly of excitement of who we were talking to? Maybe not even just between wealth and poverty, but surely we can all see moments in our life where we drift towards people with certain hobbies or certain interests and and then avoid certain people with certain hobbies or certain interests. Maybe we've drifted towards people in a similar stage of life because it's 
It's just easier. It's favoritism. Right, even in, in age, maybe we, we've made comments about the young people of our day. <laughs> oh, the young people. <laughs> the world's falling apart. The young people, those millennials. Oh, and then the young people look at the old people and be like, oh, those boomers. <laughs> oh, the boomers. They're so, oh, right? It's favoritism. Our culture is so confused on this subject right now that we actually, in our culture today, are doing the reverse of this illustration. Have you noticed? We, we look down on the rich. It's culturally okay to make fun of the rich, to imply, well, well they, they must have done something wicked to gain that wealth, those capitalists. You know you can't trust them, and so we will mock the rich, and we will even esteem the poor and, and excuse any personal responsibility. But that's not the answer. What our culture is teaching us today, that's not what Scripture teaches me. I'm not just like extreme here. There's, a, there's, there, there's teaching in our day that comes out of liberation theology that's taken the, the name of Jesus, and they've just reduced him to, to be about the marginalized to be about the poor. So you got to pay attention today because it's, it's, it's everywhere. But God's word is against any partiality. There's no, par, there's no part of being impartial that God's word is okay with. Does that make sense? Whether it's rich or poor, black or white, young or old. It's because favoritism devalues his creation. Now I am confident that our church family can grow in this area, but I just want to encourage us a little bit. I mean, God's Word's about to punch us in the gut. That's coming, but let me just encourage you before that comes, because in general, in general, I, I, I see this as a, a strength for our church family. Very encouraged about where we are as a, as a church family in this subject. Most churches in the United States are filled with people who look alike, talk alike, walk alike, educate alike, like, like, and just very homogenous. Everybody kind of looks the same. But in our church family, we have some diversity. We're not the most diverse church family, but by God's grace, we have some diversity. We have some financial diversity, meaning people at different spectrums of Affluence. We have some educational diversity. We have some different stages of life. We're not all in the same stage of life. We have some ethnic diversity. I think I'm the only Native American in our, in our church family <laughs> represent. But we have, we have, okay, we got two maybe. We got two of us holding it down. My family's trying to jump on that bandwagon also. But we don't, we're not settled with where we are in our diversity, but we are, we, we do have some diversity. So what, why we should be encouraged by that? Because what that means practically is that when we visited on a Sunday morning, when we walked through the doors, we didn't see a room full of people who looked just like us, who talked just like us, who lived just like us, and we stayed. Praise God. Praise God. That's evidence. That's evidence of his grace working in the life of, of our church family. Can we still grow? Absolutely. But praise God, we got to take the wins where we can. Let's talk about 
Our second sub-point, the failure of favoritism. Listen, I'm sure we all like to think of ourselves as inviting and accepting, but this challenge runs deep. I mean, even if you take a, a, a TV show like The Voice, right? The, the Voice is a singing competition, and, and the whole premise behind The Voice is that the physical appearance, they don't matter. And all the judges are turning and looking away, and they're just listening for the talent. But have you noticed that when that chair swings around, and when the judges see who's on the stage, and that person on the stage is kind of attractive, and they're kind of young, you'll see that judge get a little excited because favoritism, it's deeply embedded. Look at verses 5, 6, and 7. Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? First, in verse 5, James begins with a reminder to listen. Listen. It's almost like God's word is so personal and knows us so well that he knows we're going to push back on this truth. And, and so it's, listen, listen, my brethren. Second, the reference to choosing the poor. Do you see that in verse 5? That could be confusing. Choosing the poor, that's... When James writes that, choosing the poor, it's a, it's a reference to being poor in spirit. Right? It, poor in spirit, that's a throwback to Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount. And so to be poor in spirit... It's abstract language. Poor in spirit is to see our need for Jesus. It's to humble ourselves, to be poor in spirit. That's how we become a people of faith, right? Do you see that? Who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. We must be poor in spirit. I mean, Proverbs makes it clear, teaches the rich and poor have a common bond. The God of Scripture is the maker of them all. Right? There's no partiality in the character of God. He's not impressed with our outward appearances. The Apostle Peter tells us the God of Scripture shows no partiality. He doesn't care how many followers we have on Instagram. He's not, oh my gosh, if that celebrity, if that celebrity would just post verses about me, that would really help me accomplish my goals in life. Like, he doesn't care. He's not impressed with our brand of clothing. He isn't impressed with our morality. He doesn't lose interest because of our immorality. He doesn't draw near to those who are vaccinated or unvaccinated. He treats farmer and royalty alike. Isn't that amazing? When you read verses 5 to 7 and you're reminded there is nobody like the Lord. And we know favoritism is failure because of the character of God. He, he doesn't have greater affection for pastors. Sometimes 
Sometimes people will say, will you pray, will you pray for me as though my prayers are a little more close to, to heaven? No, he doesn't lean more attentively to presidents. Even right now, he's not more interested in the people of Ukraine and less interested in the people of Russia. It's his character. He's, in, he's impartial. There's no partiality in him. Who is like the Lord? Favoritism is failure because of him. It's possible that doesn't resonate with you. It's, it's possible you think, well, isn't that like what we've been like? I mean, that's what most of human history has been about, like equality, right, Michael? That's what most of human history has been about, right? No. No. Like, this is unique to the character of God. In fact, there is a book written by Charles Darwin in 1871 called The Descent of Man. And Google that when you get home. The Descent of Man. In Darwin's writings, he makes the prediction. This is 1871. Listen to this. He says, At some point in the future, civilized races will replace savage races. And by savage races, he's talking about the tribal, native people of Africa, the Americas, Australia, like all over the world. That was the leading science of 1871. That it was absolutely okay. This is what many of us right now are being taught about evolutionary theory. And the whole point behind evolutionary theory is the survival of the fittest. So that the strong survive and the weak can be discarded. The weak can be cast out. That was the foundational science of the day that led humanity to justify wars, colonialization, genocide, because the strong survive and the weak can be cast out. Listen, it's great that our culture has hopped on the bandwagon of equality but please do not think that that value originated at the university. It didn't. If you want to know where that truth comes from, whether people admit it or not, it comes from Genesis 1, where all of humanity is made in his image and all of humanity is valuable because we are made in his image. I mean, even when people say like, well, all the faith systems of the world, they kind of teach that, don't they? No. Every other faith system of the world is an outward merit. And that if you jump through the hoops of that outward merit, then that spiritual belief will fall upon you, but not God's word. That's only in the character of God. He said, he put his love upon humanity because we are made in his image. Isn't that glorious? That's only in God's word. It's like if you go to an artist gallery today, you're going to see paintings by uh, uh, different uh, artists, and they put their name on it, and, and the paintings they can produce, they, they, can, they can be different sizes, they can be different subjects, but do you know if they have the name of that artist, they're valuable. It can be a little, little piece, it can be a, a great canvas, it just takes the name, and if it has the name of that artist, the it's valuable. Therefore, more, how much more valuable are we being made in the image of God? Right? 
How much more valuable is every human being because we have the signature of God, the fingerprints of God? Genesis 1 made in his image. Why would we walk into an artist gallery around the world and ooh and ah? And not ooh and ah over every human being. And that's, that's the failure of favoritism. And the reason we know it's a failure is because of the character of God. Let's look at our last subpoint: the mercy of God. You could have the last point start with an F. But, you know, I just went with this one. It's too good to pass up, right? Let's look at verses 8 to 11. It says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he or she has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become transgressor of the law. You follow that? It's a lot. James refers to the law as the royal law in verse 8. It's the royal law because he's He's taken all the 600 plus commandments and and narrowing down into the two greatest commandments. That's exactly what what Jesus did, right? The the religious leaders, what's the greatest commandment? And he he says, love the Lord God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. It's the royal law encompassing it all together from our king over all of humanity. Now you need to know, when James references The greatest commandment, love the Lord God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, your neighbor as yourself. The royal law, when he does that, when Jesus does that in Matthew, they're both pointing us to our need for a Savior. Does that make sense? Sometimes we hear those verses and we we hear it as a challenge. We're like, all right, I'm going to see if I can do that. Nobody can do that. That should be like a mirror. Nobody can love the Lord God with all their heart, strength, soul, and mind, and neighbor as themselves. Are you kidding me? It's not meant to be a challenge. It's meant for us to fall on our knees and say, who? I mean, you think an equality sticker is going to move us to do that? Do you think that's what we're missing Like if we just had a little more training in the office, has it worked? You've gone through the classes. Have you noticed that people are just gushing with impartiality now that you've gone through the training? No. No, we need a savior. We need a savior. That's what what he's doing. He's holding up the mirror. James chapter 1, he's holding the mirror. He's like, you can't do that. We need somebody who will love the Lord God with all his heart, strength, soul, and mind. We need somebody who will love their neighbor as themselves. His name is Jesus. 
His name is Jesus. That's why James was teaching us we need the word of truth. Remember James chapter 1? He doesn't just say, James chapter 1, be a doer of the word, peace out, I'll see you later. I mean, all throughout, he's like, you need the word of truth. You need the word of truth embedded. You need the word of truth implanted. You need new hearts. You need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You need new life in Jesus if that's going to happen. We need the mercy of God. Do you know why? Because look at verse 10. We need the mercy of God. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. Just one. I mean, sometimes we tend to think of going through life like a, you know, like a bag of bricks, right? And that if we help that lady cross the street, we, we take out a brick. And, and then if we give money to somebody, we take out a brick. And then we cut somebody off on Mopac and we put a brick in our bag. We, we speak harshly to our spouse, we put a brick in our bag, right? We try to help somebody in the office, we be, you know, try to be selfless, we take a brick. We, we kind of go through life like brick in, brick out, brick in, brick out. But what Scripture is teaching us is that we would do better to see life like a window glass, like a pane of glass. And it just takes one flaw, one misstep, one fracture, and it shatters the whole of our lives. That's what he's teaching us there. In our hearts... In our hearts, if we're honest, we say to ourselves, it's just one little act of favoritism, Michael. It's just one little joke about those old people being boomers. Just one little joke. It's just one little political joke. It's just a political joke. It's just a racist joke. It's not, you know, you know my heart. It's not that big a deal. That's not what Scripture's teaching Verse 11, James compares our little missteps to murder. Oh, you see that? Murder and adultery so that all of humanity were guilty. All right, so if you've been following along, James chapter 2 here, you got this column right here, the glory of God, right? That he's perfect that he's righteous, that he's just, that he's loving, that he's merciful, right? You have that column. And then over in the other column, that's humanity, right? And then if we've shown favoritism just one time, we're guilty. We're transgressors. We're, we're, we're worthy of judgment. That's what he teaches, that we're worthy of judgment. And so what do we do? You have the glory of God. He's looking at his creation, fingerprints of his image all over us, and yet we've wandered from him. We're worthy of judgment. We're guilty. We're, we're transgressors. What does he do? What do we do? Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. 
For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen to me. James is so hard to follow. Those words. I mean, he's weaving so many ideas, like so many ideas into like one or two sentences. So let's just lean in with me. Verse 12, when James makes a reference to being judged by the law of liberty, you need to know the royal law of verse 8 that we just talked about. The royal law of verse 8 only becomes the law of liberty through faith in Jesus. That's what he's talking about in verses 12 to 13. It's the mercy of God. And this is difficult. Stay with me here. Because on one column, you got the glory of God. We just talked about that. And over in this column, you got the brokenness of humanity, like that we're worthy of his judgment. And what does he do? The God of Scripture, he steps out of heaven. He walks in humanity. He takes all of our failure, all of our guilt, all of our judgment and favoritism at the cross. That's what Jesus does. It's the glory of Jesus, the glorious Lord Jesus. That's verse 1. He takes it at the cross, and he puts it to death at the cross. And this is what happens. When you believe in Jesus, when you call on his name, he doesn't just take that column of your flaws and failure and guilt, but he gives you this column. He gives you his righteousness so that you become a law of liberty, that you can live it out. That's what he's describing in verses 12 to 13. You've become empowered by the Holy Spirit to extend mercy to others. Verse 13 can be so confusing because it can kind of sound like we gain mercy by giving mercy. Does it kind of read like that to you? Like that, that God will show mercy to us if we're merciful to others? That's not what it's teaching. Just run it backwards. What James is doing is he's basically asking us to look at our lives. He's saying, look, if you're not extending mercy to other people, if you're not extending the mercy of God to all people, then maybe it's possible you've never received the mercy of God in your life. Does that make sense? Maybe it's possible you don't see your favoritism. You don't see your guilt. You don't see that you're worthy of judgment. And you don't see that Jesus has given you mercy. Because if you have, how could you not extend mercy to all people? That's what James is teaching us in verses 12. How could you not? By grace, through faith in Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God. How could we not? How could we withhold his mercy? So if you're sitting here this morning... And by God's grace, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And so by God's grace, you see that that column. You see your brokenness, that we would see our favoritism, that we would see that we are transgressors of the law. The call of Scripture is not to hide it. The call of Scripture is not to block it out. The call of Scripture is not to go through another class. The call of Scripture is to turn to Jesus to turn to the one who takes it all upon himself, to turn to the one who brings forgiveness, to turn to the one who gives you his righteousness through no outward work of your own, but by grace, turn to him. Won't you do that this morning? I mean, if you've never believed in Jesus, believe in him right now. 
Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that he took all of, all of your judgment, all of your favoritism, big and small, at the cross, he crushed it. He conquered it. He's given you his righteousness. Believe that. Trust in him today. And if you have believed his name, then ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes wide to his mercy, to expand your heart wide to his mercy so that we might extend the mercy of God to all people because all people are worthy Right? Yeah. Listen, I'll end with a story. There's a story about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody is a pastor in the 1800s in Chicago, inner city, urban Chicago. And uh, D.L. Moody's life has been changed by Jesus. And so he starts walking around, talking to anyone and everyone about the mercy of God. And the church that he was a part of, they kind of frowned upon it. And they said, hey, D.L. Moody, you're, you're kind of bringing different types of folk uh, into the worship service. We're not comfortable with that. And so you know what D.L. Moody did? He said, okay. So he just went and started his own worship service where he could invite all people to hear about the mercy of God, all people to surrender their lives to Jesus and follow Jesus and his word. And he, he made the sign and he, he put the sign over the doors of the building and it says, ever welcome to the house of God are strangers and the poor. And that, that's what shaped his ministry in the 1800s. You can go home and read about D.L. Moody. And I thought about that as we read this passage and I thought, well, what it, what if that was the response that, that we had towards this passage? That, that we would hang a sign in our church family that ever welcome in the house of God are strangers and the poor. What if that's not just in our church family, but what if we did that personally, metaphorically, hanging a sign over every head and heart in Christ as we go throughout the day that ever welcome the house of God are strangers and the poor what if, what if we had that as we, as we went into the workplace as we went into our neighborhoods as we went into our extended family into our schools to our circles of friends and it wasn't just towards the the strangers and the poor, but towards Republicans and Democrats, ever welcome. Towards vaccinated and unvaccinated. Ever welcome. No matter what your sexual preferences might be on the spectrum, ever welcome to hear about the mercy of God, to surrender your life to Jesus and to follow him and his word. What if? I'm guessing that when this passage of scripture, when we become doers of the word, I'm guessing that's going to be uncomfortable for us. Right? If, it, if this becomes more than just kind of a warm fuzzy on a Sunday morning, and, and we actually begin to apply this truth to our lives, it's going to get messy. It's going to get complicated. It might even do what James 1 was teaching us in creating some trials and temptations in our life, right? 
But might the Lord use that to mature us in him and grow us in him so that we might cast wide the mercy of God to all people. That's the hope for our church family. I don't know if you've noticed, but since we've opened the doors and moved into this space, that's already increasing. The types of people that are walking through that door are becoming more and more diverse. Praise God. We want to invite all people to the mercy of God to surrender their lives to Jesus, that the local church, especially today in 2022, when our culture is talking about this language, might the local church be the place where it's actually put on display, where rich and poor are shoulder to shoulder, educated and barbarian are sharing a meal, black and white, young and old, as, as diverse as our city, might that be the story of North Village Church? Won't you pray for that? Won't each of us take this as a personal response of what it looks like in our lives? Will you bow your heads? Close your eyes.